Wow, two podiums, that's great. I can put my water on this one and my Bible on this one. <laughs> can everyone hear me okay? Are we good sound-wise? All right, perfect. This thing is, is on then. All right. Um, we are going to uh, look at a passage of Scripture today uh, from the book of Psalms. Um, but I'm going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look at Psalm 110. Uh, I think uh, so we'll spend a little time of, uh, uh, in that psalm today, but what we're going to do is we're going to go back into the Old Testament to give some background before we get to the psalm, uh, so that when we get to the psalm, a lot of things will be clicking and making sense for us, and then we need to go forward into the New Testament uh, to look at how the psalm was used going forward. Um, as I was studying to, to preach on Psalm 110, uh, it struck me that, the, that this psalm has connections to the beginning of the human story all the way back to Genesis and connections to the end of the Bible story all the way in Revelation. So what we're going to do in, in a sense is we're going to do a little whirlwind trip through the Bible today uh, with uh, Psalm 110 and some things it has to say at the hub of the thing. Okay, so let's, we're going to do that. Um, but to begin with, let's spend a moment in prayer. We could do that. Father in heaven. Uh, what uh, an amazing opportunity it is to come here together as your body and uh, worship you, the Son of God. Thank you that we get to uh, practice worship, as it were, as has already been said, for the great choir above, where we will join you and uh, your people from every race and tongue and time uh, and bring offerings of worship to you. Father, uh, it is indeed a privilege to be a small part of that now, and we look forward to to seeing you face to face, as your word says. Uh, Father, I feel like my brain is going off in a hundred different directions right now, and so I'm just asking you to uh, calm all of, of that down, help me to focus on what I should. Uh, I pray that the words that um, I speak this morning be, would be what you want me to speak. Um, I pray that it would make sense, and I pray that it would honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, so we're going we're gonna to spend a little time in the Bible story today. Um, centering on Psalm 110. Now, some people have asked, why, why Psalm 110? Why did you pick that one? So here's the, here's the reason, basic reason. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. This psalm has been quoted something like 14 times in our New Testament. It's, it's, it, it gets kind of high usage by the New Testament writers. Uh, and there are some elements in it that can be a little bit confusing. Uh, the way Jesus used it and stuff. And so since we read our New Testament a lot and we hit words from Psalm 110, I thought, hey, what better thing to do than to explain what's going on here such that when we hit it in our New Testament, we're like, hey, now I get it, it makes sense. Uh, when I was a, a, young, a young man, young Christian, I would read uh, things Jesus said quoting Psalm 110. I was often kind of confused at what he was doing. So I thought, well, well, we'll do that this morning. We'll deal with it. So here we go. We have to go back to the very beginning of the human story, back to the creation of the world. Uh, to understand something. God created man and woman, it says, in his image, in his likeness, and made them to have dominion over the works of God's hands. The human couple, Adam and Eve, were created to be God's little king and queen over planet earth. That's the idea. We were created as kind of like vice kings, vice regents for God. God is the, the, the overall king, the universal sovereign, right? But under him, he made people to be like him, to have dominion over the things that God had made. So far, so good. That's Genesis 1. Uh, we enter what happens in Genesis 3. We have the fall. 
right? We have the serpent sneaking in there and, and tempting the people uh, to stop uh, worshiping God and giving honor to him and his commandments. The people turn away from God and decide to follow a created being, to follow a serpent instead. And what we have happening, in a sense, is the people take their authority that God gave them to rule over the planet under him, and they give it to the serpent. We have Satan, as Paul will say later in 2 Corinthians, Satan is called the God of this world, right? And we can see that in our world today. God is indeed the sovereign over everything. God is the universal king, always has, always will be. But we have another sort of God, small g, down on here running around making a mess of things, right? Satan has become, has inserted himself in as a usurper uh, ruler. So we have given our authority away and we have uh, stained ourselves with sin. There's two little themes we're going to run off of today. One is this idea of kingship, which we gave away. And there's this idea of our need for a priest. People have not only given away their kingdom, they have separated themselves from God through sin such that we need someone to bring us back in relationship with God, a mediator, a middleman, a go-between, a priest, right? Somebody who can, who can bring us back to that relationship with God. So there's the setup by, Genesis, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3. Now, think about this just for a minute. God is way bigger than all of us, right? God is the one who spoke the world into existence in six days by speaking words. God doesn't need the people, right? The people need God, but God doesn't need the people. God doesn't need us to say anything or do anything. God doesn't even need our worship as much as he likes it. God is completely self-existent on his own, end of story. When the people sinned, God could have said, okay, see you later, you know. I'll make a new planet. Or maybe I won't. You know, maybe I'll do something different. You know, God did not need to work with us. Just the concept that God looked at us in our sin and our distance from him and said, I'm going to do something to fix that, is called grace. That's just kindness on top of kindness. That God would work with us and make any kind of a plan to bring us back to him. That's just the kindness of God. It's called grace, right? Uh, what is God's plan, ultimately, to bring the world back to him? Well, it's called the Israel plan. Uh, you have the fall, you have the flood, you have the nations after the flood, after Noah being spread out all over the world after the Tower of Babel, right? All broken up in their little language groups and stuff, all worshiping demonic gods and spirits and, you know, animistic stuff. And uh, scattered around like that. And God says, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to start a family with this man named Abraham. And I'm going to bless and save the world through Abraham's family. God makes a promise to Abraham, right? Like through you, through you, through your offspring, I will, I will bless all the nations of the world, all the little people groups, all the little family groups. I'll do that for them through you, Abraham. And Abraham says, I will trust God. Remember that? Uh, Genesis 15, right? Abraham looks at the stars. God says, I'm going to give you this great family that will bless the world. Abraham's like, yeah, you do that, God. Did Abraham understand what God's salvation plan was all the way, all the way through? I mean, I'm sure the man didn't. He probably didn't have a clue entirely what God was all going to do. Yet Abraham decides to trust God, right? And he learns to trust God more through his life as you read in the story. Now, um, we have to take a, a, a little pause as we go through the story here to deal with an, a, an excerpt from the Abraham story. What we're talking about is Genesis chapter 14. Uh, I'm going to allude to this briefly because we get into this in Psalm 110, okay? So in the, gen in the, in the story of Genesis, story of Abraham's life, there's this time where Abraham is living in the land of Canaan, and he's got some relatives. He's got a nephew named Lot, and there's a family connection there and stuff. And what happens is there are some 
there are some kings, some tyrant kings, four or five kings from another region who rip through the area with their armies and they capture a bunch of cities and they take a bunch of loot and they take all the people from those cities and take them off into captivity. And in that group is Lot, Abraham's nephew, right? And Abraham's like, I'm not going to take that sitting down. So Abraham gets, you know, 300 and some of his servants that he's got and they get their weapons and they go out and rescue all the people and get rescue all the loot. They beat the bad kings and send them, send them running away, right? So in the story here in Genesis 14, Abraham is coming back home. And as he's coming back home, he passes by the ancient site of the, of, of the current city of Jerusalem. It wasn't called Jerusalem at that time. It was called Salem. You see the, the, the similarity there, Salem. Salem means peace, you know, peaceful place, peaceful city, something. And out of Salem comes the king of Salem, a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that name means the king of righteousness, okay? It's in Genesis 14 here. Melchizedek comes out, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham in the name of God Most High. And Abraham gives a tenth of the loot, the spoil that he gained back from the wicked kings. He gives it to this man, Melchizedek. There's an interesting relationship there. The only thing I want you to remember from, from this, uh, this story that we're going to carry forward to Psalm 110 is who Melchizedek is. Melchizedek is this guy. He's the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem, and it says he is priest of God Most High. Okay? So you've got a dude who is a king and a priest at the same time. Hang on to that. Okay, we're going to use that in a little bit. All right. We go forward in the story. Uh, Abraham's family multiplies. We've got a lot of them now. Uh, because of a famine, Abraham's family ends up in the land of Egypt, where there's food. Uh, and by the time we go 400 years or so down the storyline, we have a massive uh, nation of Israel living in the land of Egypt, and the king of Egypt gets afraid of them and decides to embark on a program of genocide, right? We're going to kill off the nation of Israel because they're a threat to us, so we feel. And so we're starting to kill off all the boy babies, throw them in the river, remember that one? story of Exodus, right? And in the middle of a mess like that, where the nation of Israel is going to be actually going extinct, God sends in Moses with acts of divine power, 10 plagues that God pours out on the nation of Israel to, to get Pharaoh to wake up. You know, God's reaching out to Pharaoh. God's like, hey, you are opposing me, buddy. <laughs> Don't do that, right? Let the people of Israel go. Stop killing them off. Let them go back to their land type of thing. Uh, and the plagues happen. Pharaoh hardens his heart, and one by one, God decimates the gods of Egypt. These people worship the river, God turns the river into blood. These people worship the, you know, uh, the sun, God turns the sun off. There's the plague of darkness. These people worship the frogs, now they got frogs all over the place in their food and in their bed. God, God makes the, the, the bugs come, you know, I think they worship bugs there too, if I remember right. Uh, they have flies all over their stuff. God, God makes sickness come in. Pharaoh's court can't even stand in front of him. They're so sick. And at the end, God kills Pharaoh's son. Not only Pharaoh's son, he kills all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, right? And there's this miraculous rescue out of Egypt for the Hebrew Jewish slaves there through the Passover, right? A little lamb's blood is shed, put, painted on the door of the houses, and nobody dies in those homes. And then there's the miraculous event at the Red Sea where God opens the sea and makes a road, a dry road, by the way, where the Hebrews can run across, and Pharaoh's army trying to do the same thing gets annihilated in the Red Sea. Everything, everything Pharaoh was trusting in gets destroyed. Pharaoh gets destroyed. The Psalms says that. Okay, so we have the, the rescue from Egypt. Now, 
Uh, a super important event in the life of the nation of Israel is recorded in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, you can look there with me if you want. We're going to grab a verse out of this and then move forward. I told you this was going to be kind of fast through the Old Testament, through the Bible, right? So I'll try to keep up with doing the fast thing here. Hopefully not too fast. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. God says to the nation of Israel, there they're gathered at Mount Sinai. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And they're like, oh yeah, we did. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Look at verse 6, this is the one we want. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. There's the word kingdom. King theme, and there's the word priest. Okay, what is God doing? God is moving forward in history with his plan to bring the nations of the world back to God. God, number one, wants to have a kingdom on planet earth. That was lost with Adam and Eve. What does God do here with Israel? You guys, you as a nation, you're going to be my kingdom. You know, I will be your king, you'll be my kingdom. You are going to be a kingdom of what? priests. What's a priest? A priest is a middleman, a mediator, a go-between, right? Between God and the people and the people and God. This is the, God's plan to reach the nations of the world is to have a kingdom on planet earth that's different than everywhere else. Realize what God did when he put Israel in the middle of the pagan world, right? Everything else is demonic darkness, worshiping Satan and all the fallen spirits and all that stuff. And we have one little pinpoint of light on the planet where we've got a nation who's supposed to know God and represent God to the nations and the nations to God. It's kind of cool. God sets up his kingdom of priests. Uh, how does Israel do it being a priest nation? Not so hot. Okay, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 20, God gives the law. Here's the constitution for your nation. Ten laws. Do these things and you will have success. Uh, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 32, we have the nation of Israel dancing around the golden calf, worshiping a false god, having a party, right? Is Israel a sinful people themselves? Yes, they are. Israel needs a priest too, actually. <laughs> it's not just the world needs a priest. Israel needs a priest. So God sets up a priest person. Okay, There's a man. Aaron, it starts off as. Aaron from the tribe of Levi. He has a special uniform. He wears the names of all the tribes of Israel on his shoulders, right? And there's a special uh, tent where that man can go in and relate to God on behalf of the people. What that man does in the tent with the pouring out of the sacred lamb blood and all that thing once a year, you know, that's, that's relationship with God for all the people outside, right? Okay, cool. So what we have is a setup. We've got a place where sin can be dealt with and relationship with God can be confirmed for Israel and for the world. You, you go forward looking at the story of the temple through the Bible. That's, that's what it's for. We've got a place where the world can come relate to God. And it's not just closed off for Israel alone. The nations can come and, you know, take advantage of that, right? So here we go. God makes a kingdom. God sets up the priesthood. Next, we need to move to 2 Samuel. Uh, by the time we get to this point, we have David as the king. David is the second king of the nation of Israel. David... The scripture says, is a man after God's own heart. Uh, I, I, I like David's heart because David, even in spite of his failures and flaws, loves the Lord a whole lot. Um, so 2 Samuel chapter 10, a little back, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
chapter 7, there's a cool interaction here between David and God. We have to give some background, though. King David has just taken the Ark of the Covenant, which is the, 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 the box that has the Ten Commandments in it. It's, it's kept in the tabernacle, usually right in the center of the universe there for the Jews, right? Most special sacred object ever. And he brings that into the city of Jerusalem. David now lives in Jerusalem, where Melchizedek had been. David is the king in Jerusalem. David brings God's holy ark into Jerusalem. You remember the story. David is so excited, he doesn't know what to do with himself. Dancing down the street, you know, and there's people like, you're crazy, like, what's wrong with you? His own wife thought that about him, right? David's like, I'm just so excited, like, the Lord and I are going to be together, you know, here. God's presence next to me. So he brings it in, he makes a special, uh, makes a special tent for the, for the Ark of the Covenant next to his house, right? And then David's like one day, we need to do better than that for God's presence. I got a beautiful palace that I live in that we made, you know, beautiful wood and all that stuff. What if we made like a special house for God's presence here, like better than mine type of thing? And God speaks to uh, uh, David's uh, prophet, Nathan, and says, tell David, good idea, David, but you're not the man to do it, you know, for a number of reasons, right? You shed a lot of blood. You're not going to build the temple, but your son will do it. Uh, Solomon, Solomon will be a man of peace. He'll build that temple. So what we have happening eventually is we have the temple that's built. We call it Solomon's temple, but technically it's kind of David's temple because David spent the rest of his life putting aside money and making plans and organizing the stuff such that when Solomon becomes king, it's temple time. We can make that house for God, right? Like David wanted. Uh, look at 2 Samuel 7, and we're going to look at verse 12. Here's God talking to King David after he told him about the temple not working out for, for, for David. He says, your son will do it. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your descendant after you, that's Solomon, who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. There's the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's interesting. The Davidic dynasty is going to go off into eternity as God's kings. That's a promise to David. It's called the Davidic covenant. Okay? Keep reading. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Let's stop there for a minute. God is claiming David's son as his son. Do you realize that going forward now, the Davidic kings are known not just as the sons of David, they are known as the sons of God. The Davidic kings are like the son of God to the people. It's like God adopted David's kids going forward, you know, as, the, as, as his son as well. So that just keep that in, in mind. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. Look down at, uh, look down at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so the Davidic dynasty going forward, the Davidic kings are now known as the sons of God. Uh, now we need to look at Psalm 110. Okay, we've done the necessary heavy lifting from the Old Testament. Now what we will do is we're actually going to go through Psalm 110 uh, briefly, and then we have to blitz for the New Testament to talk about what Jesus did with it, and that's where we'll close. Hopefully this will be, we got enough time, right? Okay, uh, Psalm 110 and we're looking at verse 1. This is a Psalm of David. David wrote this. Uh, one thing that is, is probably important to note here is that a lot of scholars in our day believe that Psalm 110 was written as an enthronement psalm or a coronation psalm. In other words, when the next Davidic king came to the throne, whoever that happened to be in history, they would probably say, read, 
or maybe sing this psalm to him as kind of a welcome to the kingdom kind of thing, okay? Part of the coronation ceremony. Think of it that way. Now, here's verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, first thing we got to do is we got to deal with the word Lord. Verse 1, it says, the Lord says to my Lord. I want you to notice something about the fonts in your Bible. And actually, it's pretty helpful. We got them up on the screen. So if, it looks, if, it, if you can look at the screen here, that will help. Notice the first instance of the word Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Okay? That's indicating something with the fonts there. The original uh, Old Testament came from Hebrew. Uh, in Hebrew, there's a word, a name that's being used for God there. It's the word Yahweh. Whenever our English Bible, most of our current English translations do this, all caps like that, is an instance where it's, it's referencing that the name being used is Yahweh. It's God's personal, holy covenant name that he gave to the nation of Israel and Moses. That's what he's known by. Personal name of God, right? So, the Lord, God, says to my Lord. Look at the second Lord there. Not all in caps. What's that one? What are we talking about here? Uh, more than likely, and I think this will make sense as we read the psalm, the second Lord there is the Davidic king. So God speaks to the king. Yahweh says to my Lord, the one David calls my Lord, the king. What does he say to him? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, we've got to deal with the right hand and we've got to deal with the enemies as a footstool. Sit at my right hand. Back in ancient cultures, when someone sits on the right side of the king, that is the most important place in the room besides the king himself. The dude who sits at the, king, at, the, at the king's right hand is very, very important. It's the place of power. It's the place of honor and recognition, right? So what, what God is saying to the Davidic king here is, Davidic king, son of mine, come sit next to me. Pull up your throne next to mine. Place of honor. You know what's cool about that in history? Is where David built his house and where David put the tent of meeting. We've done archaeology, we, meaning people in our time, right, uh, on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the mountain in the center of Jerusalem, current day Jerusalem, uh, in the area where the Temple Mount is, right, the place where the old temple used to sit. And they've done archaeology and they've found not only, we know where the temple was, but they've found where King Solomon's palace was. You know where it is? Temple stands here, facing east. And to the right of it, also facing east, is the foundations for Solomon's house. And as near as anyone can tell, David probably had his house earlier there as well. God says, son of mine, set your throne next to mine. And David and Solomon say, yes, sir, they build their house right next there, put the temple right here. Isn't that cool? Place of honor, you know? We know that the temple is the place of like connection between heaven and earth, right? God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. There's the connection there between heaven and earth. And the Davidic king set his throne next to God's throne. That's kind of how it's looked at here. The idea, this is the reason I think why David was so excited when he brings the, tabernacle, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He's like, me and God are going to reign together. You know, tandem rule right here in Jerusalem. Me and God, we're going to be tight. I'm going to sit next to God like he said here. The Lord God says to my Lord, the Davidic king, sit at my right hand. And then he says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Enemies being a footstool, what's that about? This talks about an ancient practice, usually after a battle where enemies were subdued. The victor in the battle would go and place his foot on the neck of a downed enemy. We see this happening in the book of Joshua. God is saying to the Davidic king, 
I am going to give you, son of mine, ultimate victory. I'm going to bring all your enemies and put, put their, their necks under your feet. You're going to beat them. You're going to win. Okay? Promise of ultimate victory. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 2. The Lord will stretch out your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. We need to talk about what a scepter is. A scepter is a king's staff representing ruling authority. Kings in ancient, you can see it in the old pictures, right? A king with a crown, he's got like a mace or a scepter, a ruling staff or a rod of some kind. It's symbolizing his authority. God says, I'm going to stretch out your strong rule, your strong scepter from Zion. We know where Zion is. It's that mountain in the center of Jerusalem. And God will say, rule in the midst of your enemies. Davidic king of mine, you are going to rule even though there's enemies around you. You'll rule over all of them. Again, promise of victory. Look at verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely on the day of your power. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Okay, this verse has some complicating elements in it, but it's fairly easy to understand if you just look at it kind of broad picture here a bit. This one is talking about the people who serve the king. One and two is about the king. Verse three is about the people who serve the king, the king's volunteers. He says, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In the day of the king's victory, in the day when he's the victor, when he's the winner, he's going to have volunteers who are going to join him. They'll volunteer freely. Okay, they'll be his followers there, his servants. And it says, in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. How many of you, uh, maybe I shouldn't ask for a show of hands, but you all know who you are, uh, like to wake up early in the morning before the sun gets up, right? And there's this cool thing that happens, especially in the summertime before the sun gets up. You can see dew. The dew that's come out on the grass, it's like it's everywhere. There's millions of them, you know? And the sun comes up and it's all glistening and it's just amazing, okay? A lot of scholars look at this and they say what it's talking about is the volunteers of the king. Your youth, your youthful volunteers are going to be as many as the do. There's going to be millions of them. Where'd they all come from? I don't know, but there they are. That's kind of cool. I know there's other takes on that, but that's the one that makes the most sense to me. When the king has his day of power, when he's the victor, he's going to have tons of people who are with him, like the do all over the grass. That's kind of cool. Now, verse 4. Verse 4 is kind of important. The Lord has sworn... Notice again, it's capital L-O-R-D, so Yahweh, God, has sworn and will not change his mind. Let's just pause there for a minute. When God makes a promise, when God swears an oath, that's important to note, right? What God's going to say is super important here. God has sworn, and then it says, and he will not change his mind. Okay, so double strength here. God's not backing up on this one. God has promised something. What is it? You, speaking to the Davidic king, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So glad we read our Old Testament. Uh, okay, something we need to uh, spend a little, a little moment with is this. In ancient Israel, God set it up so that the kings are kings and the priests are priests, and we don't mix the roles. You all know the story of King Saul, right? King Saul, the first Jewish king, tried to get in there and offer an offering to God one time. He got in trouble with God for it. Why? You're not supposed to do that. Priest is supposed to do that. You're the king. Keep to be in the king and leave the priest stuff to the priest. There was another uh, Davidic king who intruded into the priest's office. It was King Uzziah. He wanders into the temple one day and tries to offer some incense. What happened to that guy? God struck him with leprosy to the day of his death, right? You're not supposed to be in here. That's not your job. Kings are kings. Priests are priests. We don't mix them. 
In verse 4 is a deep prophecy that we are going to uncover in the New Testament that at some time in the future, the Davidic king is going to be a priest too. There's going to be a mixing of the roles forever, <laughs> like Melchizedek. Okay, Now, why would he say like Melchizedek? Okay, Go back to our story in Genesis 14. We have this one time in ancient history where there's a king who's also a what? A priest, okay? So we can say in the future it's going to happen again with somebody, king and priest at the same time. I wonder who that could be. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's the connection there. The Davidic king is going to be a priest like Melchizedek. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. Okay, uh, now notice the, um, the, the word Lord here isn't in all caps. It's a different word. It's the word Adonai. It is a word that is used only for God. So God is at your right hand. God is at whose right hand? God is at the right hand of the king. The idea is here, what is going to happen next is God is going to be beside his king to enable him to do what he does. Okay, so this Davidic king, this, this priestly one, God is going to do something with him. Lord is at your right hand. He, that's the Lord, will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Kings are going to be shattered in the day of his wrath. That day of wrath, you guys, is a deep Old Testament theme. I know you guys talk about it here because Jeremy told me, uh, y'all know what the day of the Lord is, right? The day of the Lord is something that has not happened yet in our world. Our world is, 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 is heading toward the day of the Lord at lightning speed. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is the great end time day of judgment on all the godless nations, right? There's coming a time where God will no longer be silent. He will step out of heaven and render justice to all those who have opposed him. That's called the day of the Lord. Big, bad, end time judgment on the world. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Kings that oppose God are going to be crushed when he comes back to render judgment. Look at verse 6, same kind of material. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. The result of the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath at the end of time, is going to be piles of dead bodies, piles of corpses. He's going to crush the chief men, you know, the, the, the kings that oppose him all over the, all over the earth, right? Now verse 7. Uh, verse 7 is kind of interesting. It's kind of cryptic, actually. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't understand what 7 is doing, and I am among them. I'm going to take my best shot at it, okay? Uh, what is hard in verse 7 is we don't know who it's talking to, and then secondly, we don't know what it means. So here we go. He will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. Number one, who is he? Okay? All the he statements in the past two verses have been the Lord. The Lord crushes the enemies. The Lord shatters the kings. The Lord judges the earth, right? And then it says, he will drink from a brook by the wayside. Lord will drink from a river by the road. What does that mean? A lot of people look at it and say, you know what? I wonder if we've switched reference here. I wonder if we've switched who we're talking about. Is it possible that we have the Davidic king stooping to drink from a riverside brook after he's had his big victory and refreshing himself by the water? Something like that. Okay, That's the thought that I think makes a lot of sense. So we have the Davidic king who's God's priest. He comes down. God uses him to do vengeance on his enemies, and then the man is refreshed from the brook by the wayside. More on that in a little bit. Okay. So there's, there's Psalm 110. Everything super clear? Okay, good. We can just pack up and go home, have some lunch, right? <laughs> uh, no. If we did that, we would miss a whole lot. So we have to, we have to head toward the New Testament now. Um, but what we've got to do is sketch in between the time Psalm 110 was written and the New Testament. Uh, we've got the Davidic kings, right? Sons of God set up there to lead 
the nation of Israel to lead the nations to God kind of thing? How did the nation of Israel, how did the Davidic kings do in leading the nation to God? Not too good, right? We got a few of them who did pretty good. David and some others, few. Most of them do what? Lead the nation into idols. And by the time you get, you know, 500 years from the writing of this psalm, things have got so bad, we've got demonic idols right in the temple of God, you know? And the kings are worshiping them and the sun and the moon and the stars and all kinds of pagan garbage. And God says, I'm done here, right? And sends in who? Babylon. Babylon comes in. Crushes Israel, crushes Jerusalem, crushes the temple, crushes the people, takes them off into captivity, kills a whole bunch of them. Big bad judgment, right? God says, okay, you're going to sit here in Babylon now for 70 years till you learn your lesson, you know, and then you get to come back. That's just grace on top of grace, by the way, too. You get to come back, right? Imagine that. God didn't need to do that either. So 70 years later, captivity's done. God says, okay, you can go back. Few Jews go back home. What do they do? They're serious about worshiping God. We're going to do it right this time, right? We're not going to allow the pagan idols to come in here. They set up God's temple again, uh, and they start to rebuild the nation. That's the idea. Now, where we're going to turn is Zechariah uh, in the white pages of your Bible there. That's a joke. <laughs> Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah is, uh, so if you go to uh, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament... Malachi's the Italian prophet. You knew that, right? Have I said that before here? Malachi? Okay, Malachi. Uh, go, uh, go to Malachi and back up three, right? So you get to Zechariah. That's where it's at. That's how I find it. Uh, now, in Zechariah, here's what's happening. Zechariah is a prophet of God after the exile is done, okay? There's the last three prophets that happen after the exile. Zechariah is in the land of Israel, and what's happening is there are people who are coming home to set up the temple and set up the, the country. Now, here we go. Um... Verse 9, Zechariah 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles. And then he names these guys, three guys who come. So these exiles are coming home from Babylon. They're filtering home, and they've got an offering, probably for God's temple. People would bring money and things to help the temple get built. Take an offering from them. You shall go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah, where they've arrived from Babylon. Okay, so go to this place. Receive the offering from them. Verse, verse 11. Also take silver and gold and make an ornate crown. So take the gold and silver that these men have brought as an offering for God's house. Take it and fashion it into a cool crown. Make a nice crown out of the silver and gold. So Zechariah does that. And set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, uh, who is Joshua, son of Jehozadak? Some of your Bibles, depending on what translation, may call him Jeshua, like with an E. Doesn't matter. Joshua, Jeshua means the same thing. Okay, who is Joshua? Joshua is the high priest of the returned remnant. The Jews never forgot who their priestly line was, family of Levi, right? They had them all the time there since Aaron. So when they come back to set up the temple, Joshua is the guy who's going to stand in as high priest. Joshua is a very old man by this time. Zechariah is supposed to make a crown with gold from the exiles and place it on the head of who? Joshua, the high priest. Hold up. Are we allowed to do that? Kings are kings and priests are priests. We don't mix the roles. God says put the crown on the priest. Crown the priest. That's weird, right? We don't do that usually. Look what he's supposed to say. Verse 12. Then say to him, to Joshua, the Lord of armies says this, Behold, there is a man whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Look at verse 13. 
Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the majesty and sit and rule on his throne. So now we're having a priest sitting on a throne ruling. That's cool. So he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. In other words, the two offices, the two jobs, king and priest, are going to get along just fine in one person sitting on the throne. This is a prophecy. God is alluding to the fact, again, that in the future, we're going to have a king who's also a priest. In one person, not two. Okay. Now, we're going to run for the New Testament because this is where it gets really exciting. Because uh, it hasn't been exciting yet. Okay. <laughs> All right, and I've got to find my note here to make sure we're in the right place. Okay, we're going to turn uh, to the New Testament now. Uh, we have the birth of Jesus, right? Jesus is born. That's the first event in the New Testament writings and the Gospels there. Uh, who is Jesus? Gospels tell us that Jesus is born by miraculous conception of God in the Virgin Mary. So Jesus' father is God himself, right? Joseph is like the adopted father, but Joseph wasn't involved in the conception at all. Uh, what family line is Jesus born into? Family of David, right? Mary comes from David's line. She's from the king line. Uh, interestingly enough, Joseph is also from the line of David, so the adopted dad is from David's line as well. So we've got a whole lot of David going on, right? Jesus is born into that. Uh, Jesus grows up and God starts to mark him out as special. There's the instance there where Jesus, he's 30 years old, he goes to the water to John, John the Baptist, and he gets baptized, right? And as Jesus comes up out of the water, a voice thunders out of heaven, it's God speaking, and he says, this is my what? Son. This is my son. I love him so much. That's interesting. Son. Son of God. God has a son. What did God call the kings back in the Old Testament? Son, right? Here's the one, the one that God is saying, that's my son. That's my boy right there. Uh, that happened again on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Remember, he takes the three disciples, Peter, James, John, up on the mountain with him. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns into glowing white like he was in heaven before he was born, you know. And the voice comes from heaven again. This is my son. Listen to him. Guys are falling down their face. They don't know what to do, right? And then Jesus, you know, comes back to normal and they talk about it or whatever. God holds Jesus out as special. He's the Son, capital S. Uh, Jesus heals sick people. There's multiple instances in the New Testament where Jesus will go into a town and he'll heal everybody who is sick. Like he's not just doing one or two for a show. Jesus heals them all. You know, people line up all day from morning till evening. I don't care if you've got a cold or a broken leg, Jesus will fix it. Jesus. He's in charge of sickness, evidently. He can fix that. Jesus makes food for crowds from a kid's lunch. We just solve the food problem right here. Just make a bunch of food just because we want to. Jesus tells the storm to be quiet, and the storm has to be quiet. Jesus walks on the water. Evidently, Jesus is in charge of nature, too. Rules of nature don't apply, you know? Jesus tells the demons where to go, and they have to shut up and go. Jesus raises the dead people. Jesus is bigger than death. Who is Jesus? <laughs> Jesus asked that question one time. Matthew chapter 22. We're going to spend a few minutes here. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus asked that question. Who is Jesus? Matthew chapter 22. And we'll start at verse 41. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Here's the question, verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Okay, we have to define a term or two here. J 
Jesus said, what do you think about the Christ? What's the word Christ? In our modern world, the word Christ, the name Christ, is used like Jesus' last name, right? Like Jesus was born to the family of Mary and Joseph Christ or something like that. That's not what we're doing here, right? Glad you can laugh at that. Uh, Jesus, the Christ. The word Christ, the word Christ is an Old Testament term. Christ means literally the one who is anointed, the anointed one. Uh, the Jewish people who read their Bible, our Old Testament, knew that God had promised that God would have a son of David who would sit and rule on David's throne forever. 2 Samuel 7, we read it. Uh, there were other passages in the Old Testament which talked about this as well, right? So the people of Jesus' time referred to this special future king as the Anointed One. Now, why would we call him the Anointed One? That comes from an ancient practice that when they would put the crown on the king's head, they would anoint him with oil, special anointing oil, marking him out as God's next king, right? We'd anoint the kings. And sometimes in the Old Testament, when a king was anointed with oil, he would also be anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. Double anointing, right? David had that happen to him. The Holy Spirit came on David for his whole life, you know, when, he, when Samuel poured the oil on his head. So anointing, and the anointed one is a term uh, referring to the promised Davidic king, son of David type of thing. Uh, now, we have another word in our Bible that's related, and it's the word Messiah. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. Okay, it means the anointed ones. There's the Hebrew one, Messiah, and there's the Greek one that our New Testament comes from, the Christ. Uh, so there we go. So Jesus asked these religious leaders, he said, whose son is the anointed one prophesied in the Bible? Whose son is that? And they say, David's son, of course. Everybody knows that, right? That's what We, we know that's coming. A, a, a David's son king is going to come. And Jesus answers them right out of Psalm 110. Look at his answer. He says to them, verse 43, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, and then he starts quoting Psalm 110. David in the spirit, what does that mean? How does David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, David did that sometimes, he would prophesy, God's spirit would give him information. Evidently, Psalm 110 is one of those. How does David call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand till if it make your enemies your footstool, or put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him his Lord, how is he then his son? And no one was able to offer him a word in answer, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him any more questions. Everyone see what Jesus did there? I read this passage when I was a kid. I was raised in a Christian home. My parents gave me a Bible. I read the Bible. And I liked to read the Gospels. And I'd read this story, and I knew that Jesus did something really clever. Because look, what you know, the Pharisees shut up. They didn't know what to say to Jesus. But I didn't know what he'd done. Right? It didn't kind of make sense to me. I knew he'd put them in their place, but like, what did Jesus do there? Like, I kind of missed the connection somehow. So let's explain the connection. Jesus is saying, okay, who's the coming anointed one? They say David's son. Everybody knows that. Jesus says, okay, then why does David talk about his son and use the word Lord? The Lord God said to my Lord, speaking to his son. Isn't that a weird way to refer to your kid? You know, why shouldn't David said, God said to my son? That would make more sense. Here's the thing. There's more to the coming anointed king than just the son of David. He's son of who at the same time? Son of God, right? Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul says that Jesus was born, according to the flesh, as the son of David, and declared to be who? 
by the resurrection. Son of God with power, right? Jesus is two things at the same time. He's son of David and son of God. Now get this, if you're if your uh, you know, mind is drifting at this point, this is time to, to click back in with me just for a second. And then you can unclick and go somewhere else again if you want to. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have to do that once in, a while, once in a while in class. I don't have to do it with you people, I know. Um, how can we have a son of God and a son of David at the same time unless you have a mother who's from David's family and God as the father? There's no other way. Hidden right in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Davidic king who is the Lord, Right hidden in that verse is the virgin birth. God has a child with a human woman. That's what we have happening here. Jesus is pointing to the incarnation. It's no wonder that religious leaders didn't know what to say. Oh, we all know he's the son of David. And Jesus says, yeah, isn't he son of God at the same time? And how can you have that happen? This is a God-human we're talking about. You know, who's got both going on at the same time. Uh, The ultimate Davidic king would also be the Lord himself. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, and he is God at the same time. That blew their circuits, I'm pretty sure. Didn't know what to do with him. He says, if he calls him his Lord, how is he his son? You know, that's crazy. Hey, question. How well did the Jews receive Jesus' claim to kingship? Not so good, right? Some of them got it. Some of them, few, few minority got it. Generally speaking, though, it's not accepted real well. Eventually, what we have is Jewish religious leaders, the high priest and stuff, who really don't like Jesus for what he's saying. And so they arrest him one night, and they take him into Caiaphas' palace. Caiaphas is the high priest at the time, and Caiaphas oversees this kind of a court thing. And at the height of the court session, Caiaphas looks Jesus in the eye, points his finger in Jesus' face, and says, Who are you? Are you the Christ? Say it. What's Caiaphas trying to do? He's trying to burn Jesus. Right? Because we're just waiting for Jesus to say, yeah, that's me, I'm the anointed one. Then we can, you know, get rid of Jesus for the charge of blasphemy. Who are you? Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, you said it. (laughs) I like how Jesus said that, don't you? Yeah, you got that right. I am the Christ. You said it. Out of your own mouth, Caiaphas. You know, what is Caiaphas' reaction? Rips his shirt. Blasphemy. You all heard what he said. Yeah, we heard him, you know. And they charge Jesus with blasphemy, take him out on the hill and kill him. As we do to blasphemers. Worst day in human history in one sense. The humans reject the king who God sent to save us all from Satan's power. Nail him up on a cross to die. Rejection. And Satan thought he'd won. But what does God do with his sons? God raises his sons from the dead. There's a theme in there we haven't got a whole long time to exploit, so I'll just leave it alone. God raises his sons from the dead, starting with son number one, and then eventually going to some other sons as well. (laughs) Son number one gets raised from the dead. Three days later, Jesus comes right back to life as proof of the fact that he is indeed the king over everything, even Satan, even death. I love there's a passage in Acts. Peter's speaking to, to the Jews, and he says, death could not hold him. Right? Put him in the ground. Jesus comes right back up, and Satan's trying to, death's trying to keep him in there and can't hang on to him. Got nothing on Jesus. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is in charge of death and Satan and everything else. All the demonic spirits can't hold Jesus down. Jesus comes back to life as the king. Jesus goes where? Jesus ascends into heaven, by the way, where he sits on the right hand of God. <laughs> Notice that? That's Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, so we get it. Jesus is the king. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews for a minute. 
Book of Hebrews. Hey, we're getting close to the end of our whirlwind trip through the Bible, you guys. You're doing well. Hebrews chapter 6. How many like the book of Hebrews? I'll put up both hands for that one. Okay, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews is an interesting book because there's some real scary things in there and some real comforting things in there. So let me give you the skinny on Hebrews super, super quick, okay? Here's what's happening in Hebrews. Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians in the first century who are being persecuted. And in the middle of their persecution, they're looking around and they're saying, I wonder if we should maybe go back to Judaism where they don't get persecuted. Maybe it's safer there. Legitimate question, right? Maybe we should back up and just be Jews instead of Christian Jews. And the writer of Hebrews, I think it's possibly Paul. You can take your best shot at that one. No one's really figured it out. This guy, whoever it is, writes a sermon to them in a letter format, and he says, hey, guess what? Jesus is the center of everything. And so for you to back up on Jesus and leave and go back to Judaism where you were before, that would be a grand mistake. In fact, it would be disobedience against God. Because God has pointed Jesus out as the one, like the epicenter of the universe, right? You better stay with him kind of thing. That's the point of Hebrews. And he takes a bunch of different tactics to tell him that. Hebrews chapter 6, he says this. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20. I'm jumping in the middle of a big sentence here. We'll just go for it. He says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Oh, here we go, Melchizedek again. Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. What in the world does that mean? Jesus is not only the promised future Davidic king, evidently he's a priest as well. Do you see how God is putting the roles together like he said he would in the Old Testament? Starting with Melchizedek, who's king and priest at the same time. Starting, going next to Psalm 110, you are a priest forever like Melchizedek, king of mine. Okay, Jesus is both, evidently. But what happens in the book of Hebrews is the writer of Hebrews uh, does some role-playing. You ever read in your Bible and the authors, especially Paul, will do this little thing where they'll say something and then they'll act like somebody's got a question and they'll write the question in there and then they'll respond to the question. And we have a little dialogue going on and you learn from the dialogue, right? Because the question they ask is the question you want to ask generally. So the author of Hebrews does that here as well. I'm not going to take you to all the passages. Hebrews quotes Psalm 110 like six or eight times. I'm going to give you the gist of the argument, and you can read it on your own time. Uh, Hebrews says something like this. Jesus is a priest. And somebody jumps up and says, wait a sec, how can Jesus be a priest? Jesus ain't even from the right tribe. That's a legitimate question, right? What tribe do the priests come from? Levi. Levi. Family of Aaron. And the author of Hebrews says, oh, that's good. Jesus is, what, is from what tribe? Judah, where the kings come from, right? Jesus can't be, from, can't be a priest because he's not from the family of Levi. I get it. Kings and priests don't mix. Kings are kings. Priests are priests. But then the author of Hebrews says, ah, but Jesus is a different kind of priest. He's not like an Aaron type of priest from the family of Levi. He's kind of a Melchizedek type of, type of priest. Remember that guy in the Old Testament who was a king and priest at the same time? Wasn't even a Jew, evidently, just living in Jerusalem as the king and the priest of God Most High. You know, uh, can God do that? Can he have a king and a priest that comes from some different tribe altogether? Yeah, evidently God can do that. Oh, oh, says the questioner. Another question, uh, Mr. Author of Hebrews. The priests in the Old Testament temple have these lamb offerings that they do. You know, morning and night and all through the day, they're offering lambs for the sin of the people. They have an offering to offer. 
Jesus being the new priest, what can he offer? Oh, says Mel, oh, says the author of Hebrews, Jesus is a different kind of priest. Jesus is the best priest ever. Jesus went into God's heavenly temple in heaven and offered himself, his body and blood, for the payment satisfactory of the sins of the entire world. Mic drop. <laughs> you know? Uh, Jesus ends the lamb sacrifice forever. We don't even need it anymore. The best priest has done his job and he's done it to the end. What have we done so far? We're looking at the fact that Jesus is the center of everything. Hey, by the way, uh, the author of Hebrews is making the point here that the cross is not the worst day in human history. It's actually, from the other standpoint, the best day in human history, right? It's the best day in human history because a major problem got solved. The, the, the distance between us and God. So let's recap really quick, and then we're going to run for our last passage. Jesus is the center of everything. God made us little humans to be king, kings under him. We were given dominion over the planet. Little king and queen over the planet for God. We gave it away to the serpent. We need someone as a priest to come and bridge the gap and bring us back to God. We need someone to come and give our crowns back. So we can do what God set us up to do at the beginning. Jesus did that. Jesus did all that. He did it really good, didn't he? Jesus beat Satan in battle. Jesus beat death in battle. Jesus beat sin in battle. Jesus took down all the enemies, you guys. There's like none of them left standing that actually have a prayer. Do you realize that the cross is the great epic battle in history? The rest of it's just mop-up, you guys. There's a future battle coming. We're going to look at it. But the big winning battle of the, of, of the entire history of the world is the cross, where Jesus takes out all the enemies and then rises again beats a few more. Okay? Uh, cross and resurrection. Big stuff. Big stuff. Last passage. I promise it's the last one. We need to go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. And then we'll go get some lunch. Revelation 19. Verse 11. Uh, what we have happening in Revelation chapter 19, it's the culmination of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation uh, is future. The book of Revelation chronologues the last big worldwide attempt at ousting God. And what we have happening in the book of Revelation is the plagues of Egypt part two. It's not just Egypt that's in fire, under fire from God for rebelling against him. It's the entire world. In the future, what we are going to have is a world that completely turns its back on God and God is going to bring Egypt part two with all kinds of plagues. You can read the book of Revelation to get humanity's attention and say, come back to me. Listen to me. Okay? What do the humans do in the book of Revelation? They don't listen. They don't care. They don't want him. So at the end of the last big plague, we see this. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. Behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Uh, what we're looking at here is the great day of the Lord. This is what we talked about earlier. And there's things in here that are very similar to Psalm 110. Okay? Psalm 110 had two little verses about him crushing the kings and rendering judgment among the nations or whatever. This is the expanded edition with more details. Think about it that way because that's really what it is. I remember uh, talking with a, a friend of mine when we, when we worked in Russia. I had a, um, a language helper named Dennis. 
Dennis and I work together a lot, learning language, right? I need to learn Russian. And I remember telling him, hey, this is my favorite passage. Look what Jesus does here, you know? And Dennis is like, this is scary. And I think of all the people who are going to die. And I'm like, you're right. You're right. Absolutely right. Look at the verse, though. It says, in righteousness, he judges and wages war. You guys, it's going to be right. Jesus won't do it wrong. He won't step one foot further than he should. It's going to be the right thing to do at the time, right? We reach a point in human history where God says, okay, enough. And he comes in to fix it. Here's God fixing it. Verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. You see everything. Now on his head are many crowns. <laughs> Not just one, all of them stacked on his head. I love it. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The robe dipped in blood there is probably the blood of his enemies. Uh, Isaiah 63 talks about that. His name is called the Word of God. That's John language. John writes Revelation. John language for Jesus, the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From Psalm 110, you can insert the word volunteers here. Remember Psalm 110 talked about the king will have many volunteers. There'll be millions of them like the do kind of thing. Here, we got some people come with him. Who's the, who are the people? These are the saints. This is God's holy people. This is the church. This is probably even Old Testament saints coming with him. Clothed in white robes of righteousness. Uh, are they coming to fight? No. Jesus will do all the fighting. They're just coming along to watch and take part in his victory parade. That's what they're there for. And some other things we'll talk about in chapter 20. There they are. There's the volunteers. There's his people. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. What that means is his word is the power to do the destroying. Think about this. Jesus is the God who spoke the cosmos into existence over six days, saying words. Jesus can come in and speak it out of existence too if he wants to, right? His word's pretty powerful. Out of his mouth comes the sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. The, the, the rod there is like a scepter. It's like the ruler's staff. Psalm 110, I will extend your strong staff from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies, right? He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. What's a winepress? Super short. A winepress is a big cement box that ancient cultures would make. They throw a bunch of grapes in them, and then they get in there and tromp around on them with their feet, crush all the grapes, and out comes grape juice that we can make into wine. Wine press. What's going to happen in this, in this picture is an image, it's a frightening image, is God going to take all the godless nations and throw them in his wine press and crush them all? Talked about that actually back to Psalm 110 as well. He's going to crush all the bad nations, crush them under his feet kind of thing. It's a similar picture here. Verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of, Lord of Lords. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, come assemble for the feast of the great God. Uh, supper time for the birds. Uh, verse 18, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slaves, small and great. Verse 19, and I saw the beast. That's a character from the book of Revelation or the Antichrist, right? He's been leading the rebellion against God. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. What a stupid idea. Seriously. Verse 19 puzzles me a whole lot. Like all this power coming down out of heaven, you know, sword coming out of his mouth and all that's like, yeah, we're going to fight that. <laughs> that's not a good idea. Verse 20. 
And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, another character from Revelation, who, per who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image, and they were thrown, two of them alive, into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword of, uh, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Uh, I'm going to tie one more thing in, and then we've got to look at a couple of verses in, verse 20, in chapter 20. There is a, a parallel passage to Revelation chapter 19. It's in the Old Testament. You can mark it down, look at it on your own time. Book of Zechariah that we read before, Zechariah chapter 14. It describes the same event with some different detail. Kind of, It's the same story, though, destruction of God's enemies. And in the middle of the story, it says, when this great king comes down and wreaks vengeance on the enemies, there's going to be a river of living water that's going to flow out from the temple and go out and heal the land. It'll go out and heal the whole world. What's talking about here? I think this is where uh, Psalm 110, verse 7 fits in. A stream of living water that comes out. The king will drink from that and be refreshed, and the water will heal the world type of thing. Okay? Just a connection. Revelation now, chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. Notice that he names him four different ways, just in case you're wondering who we're talking about here. Took hold of the devil, right? Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is called the thousand-year binding of Satan. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Uh, don't ask me why Satan gets a second shot for a short time. We'll talk about it in a minute here. But thousand years of no satanic interference. Probably Satan's minions get locked up with him as well at this point. Okay, we have God coming down, Jesus coming down, the king, and Satan gets locked up for a thousand years. Now verse 4. Then I saw thrones. I don't know. I don't know about that. 20 verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Who's the them? Keep reading. I saw the souls who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What we have happening here is we have the persecuted believers from all time get to come back. What do they come back to do? Put on a crown and reign with Jesus. They have the church. They have people sitting on thrones, ruling with Jesus. They come to life and reign with him for a thousand years. That's awesome. Remember I said that uh, the followers of the king appear like dew and take their place with him? When this happens, it's going to be miraculous. You have people coming back from the dead that haven't been here for a thousand and a half years. You know, persecuted saints of all time. And the world's going to say, where did they all come from? There's millions of them, these volunteers that appeared to reign with this coming king. Fantastic. Just like Psalm 110. Remember I said that we need someone to beat Satan and give our crowns back? <laughs> yeah. This is going to be a complete reversal of the world order, you guys. Those who join the serpent will be cast out, and those who join David's royal son will share the rule with him. Uh, note for those of you who are Bible nerds, this is called the Millennial Kingdom. A okay? thousand-year kingdom. All right. Um, what else do we do? What about Satan coming back, you know, to trick people again? Middle of chapter 20, it says Satan gets to come back to deceive people for a little while. 
And we're like, what? Satan is released? Like, that's not allowed. Why did God do that? Why would God do that, right? Hang on. Satan gets released to be destroyed. Satan's let out for a short period of time. Satan comes back and says, I'm the one, follow me. And God says, no, you're not. Nope. The end. <laughs> and Satan is put in the lake of fire where he belongs. End of chapter 20. And then we have chapter 21 and 22. and says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And no sickness, sadness, pain, death, sin. The curse is reversed. And we have God's servants with him, serving him, worshiping him, reigning with him. Notice how we ended up where we started, kind of. This is what God wanted. An entire world filled with worshipers, an entire world of people who love him and reign with him over the created order like God gave them to be in chapter 1 of Genesis. God fixed the problem in Christ. All right, so we've, we've taken our whirlwind trip through the Bible with Psalm 110 at the middle. Let's do application. Three points, super quick. Okay, I promise to keep this quick. We've looked at creation, fall, Israel, We've looked at what Jesus did to redeem, and then we sped ahead to the end time to look at the consummation of all things, the wrap-up of the story. What about me today? What about us today? We live in something that is called the time of proclamation. Do you realize that? We live in the time of proclamation. You guys had a communion last week, I think, right? Yeah, first of every month. We do that in our church back in Waukesha, too. Uh, we read a passage of Scripture at our church for communion every Sunday. It's 1 Corinthians 11, right, where Paul talks about communion, Lord's Supper there. So point number one for application, Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim something. We proclaim the Lord's death. That is what we are here to do. As Christians, we are here to proclaim the Lord's death. Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. We are here to proclaim that. We are here to proclaim it to the lost. We are here to proclaim it to people who want to hear that. We are here to proclaim it to people who don't want to hear that because Jesus died for them too. Jesus died for every man, woman, and child on the planet, and his cross is sufficient for the payment of the sins of every one of them. Our job is to proclaim that to them. Guys, can I just tell you, find a way. It's hard stuff for me, right? It's very easy for me to stand in front of a sympathetic audience and talk very specifically about this kind of thing. It is a little bit harder out on the street with somebody who doesn't care. I get it. I talked to my mechanic last week. He didn't like to hear what I had to say. Okay? He won't talk about the car. <laughs> I'm trying to talk about this stuff. I get it. It's hard. It's not easy stuff. Find a way. Find a way. Learn how to change conversations and bring in Christ and bring in the cross because this is really what they need to hear, right? We proclaim the Lord's death. Those who trust him will have their sins forgiven and be given eternal life. This is our job in the present age to point to the cross. Number two, the same passage that says we proclaim the Lord's death has a second part. We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That is the context of our proclamation, till he comes. You guys, we do not have forever to proclaim. We're on a time limit. Box ticking. At some point, proclamation time will be done. Jesus will come back and it will be kingdom time. And then we won't be proclaiming him anymore because that will be done with. We proclaim the Lord's death to the lost people. I think it's completely legitimate to also proclaim the coming kingdom to the lost people. Would it be helpful for us to say, hey, Jesus died for your sins, you can trust him, and also to say, hey, listen, you haven't got a whole lot of time. Jesus is coming back. Day of the Lord is going to roll in, and you don't want to be caught outside of Jesus at that point. It's like Noah's Ark, right? We need to get in the ark before the big storm comes. Would it be important to bring that into the conversation? Yes, it would be. We proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim the coming of the kingdom. 
And then lastly, uh, there's a, a scene in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, there's a scene in heaven. The Apostle John gets pulled up into heaven and he sees this. And what, what there is is there's a throne and there's a beautiful crystal sea in front of it and there's rainbows and there's lightning and there's angels. And in the center, there's the throne, and God is on the throne, and then he looks a little closer, and the Lamb is on the throne, the one who paid for the sins of the world, Jesus, right? So Jesus is being worshipped, God is being worshipped, the center of everything. And there's these other people that are sitting there. There's thrones sitting around the throne, and there's people with crowns on. Who are they? Near as I can tell, it's the church. Near as I can tell, it's the people of God. What are they doing with crowns on? Evidently, this is pointing toward the end of the story where Jesus has come and given the crowns back. He's, he's, he's got some rulers, some people with him, under him, obviously. What are they doing with the crowns? Oh, they're taking them off and they're putting them down in front of his feet. You guys, if I ever get a crown like that to wear, that's where it's going. Because I shouldn't be wearing it anyway. He should be. Jesus is worthy, 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 right? To wear all the crowns that are ever made. Um, you know, it's, it's a blessing to me when we get to come in here and worship together. We sing such great songs up here, amen? We sing stuff about Him. We sing stuff about re reality. You know, we, we, we worship with the saints of the past and the saints of the future. We pour out our praise to Him because He's given us the breath to do so like we sang today. And you know, it's kind of it's funny sometimes. I come into church and I'm like, ah, oh, I, I, I want to worship again. You know, it's like uh, worship is like water for a parched soul, you know, over a dry week or whatever. I get to be here with God's people, by God's spirit, worshiping him. So worship once a week. We got more worshiping to do. Right? Like the song said, I get to love you back because you love me. Consider worship as being something we don't just be, on, be doing on Sunday. Right? And I'm not just talking about songs. I mean, I could sing all week. That's a great thing too. Sing to him. Pour out your praise because he's worth it. What about all of our actions being an act of worship? You know, day is coming where I might have a little crown I get to put down at his feet. What do I have right now? I don't got a crown right now. But I got 24 hours in a day. I got a little money in the bank. And I got a family. And I got a job. And I got a car. And I got some friends. I have some things, right? What can I do with my life and my time and my things? I can pour that in front of his feet too, can't I? I can be like the lady that broke the little bottle of ointment, dump it on Jesus' feet, it's all for you, right? I'm not going to tell you how to do that. You figure that out, right? We can worship him today, and we should. Because the time is coming when the practice worship will be done and we'll do the real thing all together, right? That's, that's where we're headed, so let's do it now. That's where I end up with anyway. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming down here at your own expense to fix our problem to fix all our problems. Um, Father, you have done really well. You have blessed us really well. And Lord, we want to bless you back by our words and our actions. We want to live for you. Father, if there's sin that's in the way, we want to say goodbye to that. We want to worship you with a pure heart like we should. If there's broken relationships that we need to fix, Lord, we need to fix those so we can worship you with a pure heart and unhindrance. Um, Father, we want to come to you afresh this week and give you what is due to you. And Father, may that be in the words we say to you and may that be in the words that we say to others as well. Father, we want to do our job well this week to proclaim your death till you come back. And Lord, like your word says, we look forward to your coming with great anticipation. Lord, you say there's a blessing for those who look forward to the coming. So we do, Father, we do. Even so, come Lord Jesus.
Amen.